My name is Sabila Khan, and I am one of the millions of Americans who have lost a loved one to COVID. My father, Shafkat Khan, was the loving father of three, the doting grandfather of seven, and the devoted husband to my mother for what would have been 50 years last October. As a community activist in Jersey City, he spent years carving out spaces and opportunities for others. On March 11th, as the tri-state area went into lockdown, the rehab facility where my father was receiving physical therapy for Parkinson's closed its doors to visitors. We never saw him again. It truly takes my breath away to imagine the fear, isolation, and trauma that my father suffered during the last week of his life. And in what was the most surreal and heartbreaking moment of my life, I had to watch his burial live streamed on my phone. But sadly, my story is not unique. For every COVID death, there are an estimated nine close family members left behind. Sabila Khan is one of the estimated nine million family members left behind. Her father, Shafkut, died in April 2020. He was among the first 25,000 casualties in the pandemic. On May 12, 2022, the pandemic death toll reached a grim milestone. One million lives lost. Marine Khan, and this is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world. This week, we take a closer look at the myth of closure, ways of remembering, and the paradox of living with loss. We begin with Sabila Khan. She's the co-founder of the COVID-19 Lost Support for Family and Friends group, and she's a member of COVID Survivors for Change. Tell me about your dad. Uh, my dad was 76 years old at the time that he died. He moved with us to the U.S. in 1982, loved baseball. He loved cricket. I get my passion for reading from him. He couldn't leave a written page unread. Mm. He loved food. My husband and I still talk about how he had probably the most sophisticated palate of, of anyone we know. And he was just larger than life. Like if anyone saw him, he he was scary looking. He was he was big. He was a tough guy. He was he wasn't shy or scared of anyone. He wasn't scared about speaking the truth, but he was a teddy bear. Um, he raised us with so much love and kindness and care. It is very well known in my family that when it came to illnesses, any cuts, bruises, scrapes, normal colds, he would like be completely out of commission. He couldn't deal with it. Like he did not have the stomach for it. He would be crying in the corner oh. while my mom would, would be taking care of us. He sounds like a really sensitive teddy bear. I mean, it sounds he like he was yeah. so sensitive. 
sensitive. And it's like not not many people knew that. Um, mm. And, you know, I think it really it was his sensitivity that um, that brought him to his advocacy work that he did. It was because he truly cared about people that he would really go to great lengths to take care of people in the community. So he was probably one of the smartest people I knew. And he was just a really great, interesting guy um, who was just so full of knowledge and curiosity and love. He was fierce. He loved us fiercely. He protected us fiercely. What was the reaction in your community to the news of, of his of his death? It, it was a big, big shock. Um, when he died, he had been battling a very aggressive form of Parkinson's disease. Mm. So his advocacy work had been put behind him because he was physically unable to to do the work. A friend, you know, said to me, he was like, he this he was a he was a legend. He was a legend in the community uh, because he was always the first to stand up and help anyone who needed it in any capacity. So this was from, you know, cutting through the red tape of immigration issues um, to finding housing and jobs for new immigrants, um, people who are new to the country. You know, one of the things that I think we missed when he died was seeing that outpouring of support and love from the community. The community mourning and burial in the Pakistani tradition is a bit different than in in a mainstream American culture. Yes. The expressions of grief are different. Can you describe what they're like? I imagine many of our listeners have never attended a Muslim funeral service or a Pakistani funeral service. It is an experience for the senses where people, no one is, no one is holding their, their pain back. Uh, people are crying. People are wailing. People are praying fervently together. Uh, so it is a very um, communal event, but it is very, very visibly emotional. Even as you're mourning together, as hard as things are, it's it's good to be together. Um, and and we just didn't have that. I think it would be really hard to do a memorial at this point. I don't think I'd want to do a memorial at this point. Um, Why not? Because for me, it feels like the moment is gone for the Muslim burial. Like that happened. Mm -hmm. He had the burial that he had. It was according to Muslim tradition and Muslim cultures. And we don't want to put our relatives in a position of having to fly in from other countries to gather together, you know, in person. We don't think that the situation is safe. And secondly, I think it would just be too painful for me personally. I don't think it would give me any sort of closure. What does closure mean for you? Oh my gosh, closure. I I, I don't know what closure means uh, because this was my first experience with uh, the death of someone who is so close to me. 
But even as I was going through it, I knew that it was very, very unusual. Um, and uh, seeing everything that I've seen about COVID grief, reading everything I've read about COVID grief and how, how it's trauma, um, I don't think whatever this closure is, I don't think I'm going to achieve it, sadly. Um, and I'm not sure what it means. Mm. The circumstances of his death were unfortunately so uniquely horrifying that how do you come to terms with that? I haven't in over two years, and I'm not optimistic that I will. Sabila, why did you feel the need to make your grief public? Even as I was living through this experience of my father dying in a hospital three blocks away from us, I knew that this was not normal. As as much as friends and family were reaching out to us, as much as they were emailing and calling and texting, all I wanted in that moment was to talk to other people who had gone through what I'd gone through. Mm. I could not sleep at all after my dad died. So I was up at night um, on this Facebook group called uh, Survivor Corps for people who themselves or their loved ones are going through COVID. So I posted for the first time to the group and asked if there was, if anyone was aware of a COVID bereavement group. Um, and, And at the same time, I started digging around and I couldn't find anything. So the the members of Survivor Corps started encouraging me to to start a group. And about two hours after I posted, another um, woman uh, from the New York, New Jersey area posted that she had lost her father the previous day. Mm. And she was looking for a support group as well. And without even thinking about it, I reached out to her and I said, listen, there isn't one. I lost my dad on Tuesday. I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to start one. Do you want to start this with me? And she said, yes. Four days later, um, we started this group and it was, it was truly the best thing I could have done, um, in the moment because it gave me direction in my grief. It gave me purpose in my grief. It, it, it helped. I created the community that I needed in that moment. And obviously with hindsight, I see that there is a very beautiful through line between the community work that my father did. Um, so it very quickly became for me a way to carry on my father's legacy to, to ensure that his good works didn't die with him. How many are our members today? We have over 14,000 members. It's become, you know, more than just a space for people to, to connect and, uh, share their traumas, share their grief. I, I don't know what I was expecting that on that Saturday when I started the group, but it has become a big, robust, vibrant, beautiful community. You know, as this Facebook group evolved, it also began to include um, political activism. You, you all began to talk about asking for answers to questions that 
haven't fully been answered. Right. And to be clear, the group itself, the space itself remains apolitical. Uh, We don't discriminate along political party lines. um, Because as I've put it before, COVID is an equal opportunity killer. Yeah. It sounds like your efforts to create a safe space for the bereaving um, is also mindful of the the weaponization that's happened in our political discourse around yes. public health strategies, whether people vaccine, whether they wear a mask. How did you avoid that? How did you navigate that that highly politicized weaponizing of public health strategies? It, it wasn't easy. I remember, I think it was fall of 2020, when Bob Woodward's book came out, and we had the audio tapes proving that Trump knew that this virus was was airborne. The post started spiraling at that point into political spaces that we did not allow in the group. And um, the admins, we admins were up basically for half the night, not only taking down posts, even if the poster was, was a Trump supporter, it's like we had to be mindful that these were highly traumatized individuals. We would reach out to the poster and be very gentle, just a reminder that we don't allow this kind of political discourse in this space. Uh, and I remember at one point I was sobbing in front of the computer. I was literally getting attacked from both sides by like mm. anti-Trump people and pro-Trump people. And I felt so stuck, caught in the middle. Last fall, we brought on eight moderators from the group. So we are actually approving each and every post. So that helps. Having that sort of built-in support definitely helps. But, I, you know, I, I don't know how we did it. I think people who join our group are in such pain. They're looking for any sort of support. You know, it doesn't matter if it's coming from a Republican or a Democrat or um I don't know, a libertarian. It doesn't matter. They just want that community support. They're seeing these posts. They can't sleep at 3 a.m. And and they're posting, you know, I'm feeling so much guilt about my mom dying. I shouldn't have sent her to the hospital. Is there anyone else up right now? Is there anyone here? And you'll get 30 comments responding to that person saying, I'm here. I hear you. I understand. I know exactly what you're going through because I'm going through the same thing. So I think people at the end of the day are so grateful for for this space that they themselves don't want to muddy it up with with politics. Tell me about the public call you are making to lawmakers in response to what's happening. We as a group are supporting the Prevents Pandemic Act, uh, which is a bipartisan bill being brought forward by the Senate. A part of the bill is a call for a COVID commission. And I think most people in my community would agree that we need to figure out why our loved ones died, how it got so out of control, how we 
stand at 1 million lives lost in the U.S. We're the U.S. where we, we're supposed to be the strongest country in the world. And yet, how did we get here? How did two administrations fail us? Um, so I think there is a feeling that we need answers. I think for myself, I want to ensure that we learn some lessons from my dad dying. I don't want him to have died in vain. I want to make sure that in the event of any future pandemics, we take the lessons learned, the hard lessons learned during this one, and use them towards ensuring that all people are safe and protected. You once referred to COVID victims as an inconvenient statistic, and you worried that they were being pushed aside. Do you still feel that's true? Yes, 100%. Um, I felt that way when my father died. And I, I feel like that's even more the case now because there's this push to reopen. There's been this push to reopen since December, January. Um, and I feel like politicians don't want to align themselves with, with, with groups that represent what this virus is actually capable of doing, you know, be it long hauler communities or COVID bereaved communities. And it's like, everyone is minimizing what COVID is. Everyone is minimizing what COVID can do because the general interest right now is it's to just get on with it, to to get on with, with reopening, to get on with unmasking. I think we've we've come to terms with the fact, shockingly and very sadly, that this mass disabling and mass death event is it's gonna be a part of our lives. And it's it's shocking to me. It really renders me speechless to think that we are at this point as a nation. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. Sabila Khan is the co-founder of the COVID-19 Loss Support for Family and Friends. She's also a member of COVID Survivors for Change. Two years ago, everything in her life changed when her father, Shafkuth Khan, became one of the early casualties in the COVID-19 pandemic. He died suddenly and alone in a hospital just three blocks from her home. Sibila watched his burial on her phone. There were no traditional memorials or funeral prayers performed. No family came in to gather. And the grief became overwhelming. She found herself in search of others who also lost loved ones to COVID-19. Finding none, four days after her father died, she co-founded the COVID-19 Lost Support for Family and Friends. Today, it's the largest network of COVID bereaved in the world. And they offer members a variety of supports and opportunities for advocacy. It's become a major focus in Sibila's life. And as she describes... It's not always easy. I was so busy because, you know, it's like full-time job, two children, my mother's grief. Um, and then having this, I mean, this is like another full-time job on top of it, to be honest. 
I did hit some, <laughs> some periods of like absolute burnout. How do you sustain yourself? How does faith or spirituality play into this work? Prayer has really been sustaining me. Uh, it's It's been very, very helpful over the past two years. What does your prayer practice look like? I'll either read the Quran or I will just pray. I have a digital thesby on my phone um, and I will pray on that. Um, I'll just say random prayers. It's not very... Um, it's your own practice. It's my own practice, but it's been very sustaining. Uh, but I have, I feel like ever since my dad died, I feel like I have a stronger connection to God. Like I have a person there. Um, so I do find that prayer helps me in a way that it probably never has in my life. Mm. Um, and aside from that, it's like romance novels. <laughs> <laughs> so there's faith, but there is also the consumption of um, of romance novels. It's like I've been binging on romance novels. It sounds like you're finding all the different things that give you some <laughs> space and some comfort in all the different. It's it's a balance, and as wonderful as having our faith to lean on is, if there's anything I've learned over the past two years, it's that there's certain traumas that that require more interventions. Sometimes you need to see a therapist as much as, as you love your faith and as sustaining as you find prayer. Sometimes you need professional help. And I really hope that these conversations happen in a real meaningful way in our communities. It's so much happening this month. Um, Memorial Day weekend is also the two-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. And there are all these reckonings happening. You have lots of different communities. You've got your work community, your family community, your survivor community. Are you, are you seeing things that give you hope? Oh, <laughs> I truly wish there was something giving me hope. I think it would make it would make things a lot easier for me, but it's, it's been hard. These past two years have been hard. Life will never go back to normal. No, life is nowhere near normal. Obviously, is no going back to normal for us. This is our new normal. We're in the middle of another surge. Hospitalizations are rising. I'm constantly in fear for, for my mother, who is elderly. Um, I can't lose another, I can't lose a parent, I can't lose my mother to this. So this is very much a reality for me, and I think it's very much a reality for many, many people in the COVID-bereaved community. And I think we don't have the privilege of walking away from this. Do you think you'll see your dad again? Do you feel his presence? There were a couple of times when I've really, really felt his presence. That was reassuring. Um, I, 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 it's so hard for me to think about the afterlife as I'm going through this very sort of current 
and visceral experience of 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 trauma right now but it does give me hope to be reunited that we will all die we are all meant to die at some points Sevilla, thank you so much for sharing. You've really opened up, and that vulnerability is something that not many are willing to share, especially around loss. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Sevilla Khan is a native of Jersey City. She co-founded the COVID-19 Loss Support for Family and Friends Network. Part of her journey remembering and honoring her dad's legacy is advocating for policy change and accountability. Khan wants bipartisan legislation to pass that will strengthen the nation's public health and medical preparedness and response systems in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. She also wants to see the creation of an independent COVID commission. Here she is speaking at a press conference with members of Congress explaining why. We come from diverse backgrounds and political affiliations. And in spite of our differences, most of us would agree on the fact that a COVID commission is urgently needed. Today, we believe that a nonpartisan, independent, equitable, fully funded, comprehensive, and fair COVID commission must center the voices, experiences, and needs of the communities most gravely impacted by this virus not only the bereaved, but also frontline healthcare workers and COVID long haulers. We must take a full and unvarnished look at what happened and why, so that we can understand how to make sure it never happens again. We demand support from both sides of the aisle for this, because if COVID has shown us anything, it's that viruses don't discriminate across party lines. And in order to properly safeguard Americans from a future pandemic, we need to start doing the same. We expect the findings to set into motion legislation and best practices that will save lives and spare others the trauma that millions of us are suffering today. And I want to add that while none of the findings will change the fact of how our loved ones died, a COVID commission can bring so many families some measure of closure and healing. Closure is a perfectly good word for a store that's closing or a road that's closed because of a flood. That's closure. But it's an inappropriate and hurtful word to use for people who have lost a loved one. That's Pauline Boss. She's a pioneer in family therapy and stress studies. Back in the 1970s, she coined the term ambiguous loss and went on to create a therapeutic framework for therapists and mental health clinicians to build resilience in clients who face the trauma of loss without resolution. Her work began with families of soldiers missing in action. Our language and understanding of grief, she found, falls short, and that makes us ill-equipped to manage the stress of loss. It's the case she lays out in her most recent book, her seventh, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change. When we come back, she offers insights and suggestions on how to tolerate ambiguity, build resilience, and emerge from crisis stronger 
than we were before. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Thank you. 